Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, why don't you uh, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 7 tonight. Exodus chapter 7. You probably are, are already there. But do me a favor, turn your heads to your right and say hi to all the people in the family room. Wave to them. There you go. They're your family too. And then if you can, just look back and see all the people in the balcony, wave to them. See? We just don't want to neglect anyone here. Okay, Exodus chapter 7 tonight. That's the study we want to look at. And then we want to have our Bible study. And afterwards, we want to segue right into the Lord's Supper and take that together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we approach your word with a sense of anticipation, eagerness, because we believe that even as you have spoken in times past, you still speak today. You speak to the person of your son, you speak to the pages of your word, and you speak in the confines of the human heart of men and women using the very principles that are preserved for us on the pages of Holy Writ. We pray that you'd instruct us, challenge us, admonish us, encourage us, and ready our hearts as we take the Lord's Supper in a few moments later on. In Jesus' name, amen. If you followed the news at all the last couple of weeks, the big headline is crisis in Cairo. You know about the people that are gather every day in Tahrir Square in Cairo. A hundred thousand people last Friday alone gathering together. Several anti-government protests. Wanting to oust 82, almost 83-year-old Hosni Mubarak, the president of Egypt and that military coalition that he has been in charge of for years. Mubarak, last we have heard the reports deciding to stay firm, as firm as he can, to allow stability in the country, because when you pull out a leader and there's this major vacuum, anything can happen, especially in places like Egypt. I read an interesting report today from a man by the name of Wael Gonim. He is the executive president of Google in Egypt. And he is so sick of the Mubarak presidency, he says, I'm willing to die in order to see change in my country. So there is a crisis in Cairo. The book of Exodus is the original crisis in Cairo. A whole group of people who were once prominent and had become slaves are protesting, if you will, the government of Pharaoh, wanting release from his stronghold, wanting to go out into the wilderness, sacrifice to Yahweh, their God, and get their own land as well. Now, just a little backtrack. If you recall, 70 people, that's all, 70 people, part of Jacob's family, went down to Egypt and they populated there. They were there for a number of years under the reign of Joseph, who was second in command, prime minister of Egypt. 70 people go down with Jacob And the family multiplied, the Bible said. 400 years later, the time we're studying now, 
There's between two and three million Jewish people who had become slaves. And you say, well, what happened there? Well, what happened there, we're told in chapter 1 of Exodus, is there arose a king, a pharaoh, who did not know Joseph. Joseph was part of his history. But either he didn't review it or he conveniently forgot it, but he didn't remember what God had done and the spiritual history of Egypt. When I read that, I thought about us. And I thought about how we, like any nation can forget the roots, spiritual roots of that country. As an example, there was a time in this country when the main textbook was the Bible. Good luck trying to find a Bible in a public school nowadays. You might get kicked out. Harvard University was developed to train up men for the ministry. And again, the Bible was at the forefront. Well, those days are gone. And a lot of people have forgotten that that's the original history. So we do well to not only remember our spiritual history personally and nationally, but to pass it on. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because it would be 100% how many people have heard of Coca-Cola. Who hasn't? Um, 97% of the world has heard of Coca-Cola. 97%, almost 100% of the world has heard of Coca-Cola. 72% of the world has seen a can of Coke or a bottle of Coke, depending on what cultural context you're in. And 51% of the world has tasted Coke. Over half of the entire population of planet Earth has tasted Coke. The reason for that is Coca-Cola made it their goal to have the world taste their product. And they went on a huge and are still on a huge advertising campaign. It's interesting that Coca-Cola advertises. You think, why do they need to advertise? They're so big. They're so big because they advertise. And uh, here's a contrast. How many of you have ever heard of Arbuncle Coffee? Probably no one. They were the number one seller of coffee in America at one time. Everybody in America knew about Arbuncle Coffee. Nobody knows about them anymore because they, as a stated goal, said we do not need to advertise. So they didn't pass it down to the next generation. Well, you know what? We need to not only remember our spiritual history, we need to advertise it to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. This is how your grandfather or your father or your mother came to know Christ. And here's the legacy of our family. And you recall that spiritual history so that they will remember their roots. It's very important. And that's why we have communion often. Some do it every day. I do it once a week with a group of pastors up in my office. And we do it as a body of Christ once a month. We do it often, Jesus said, in remembrance of him. And we're passing down that legacy and remembering our spiritual history, our legacy and the roots of our faith. And that failed to happen here. Well, here we come to the great showdown. Beginning in chapter 7, the face-off, the real showdown between Yahweh, the God of the universe, and Pharaoh, who thought he was a god along with the other Egyptians in his territory. Now, if you remember, 
The first time Moses comes before Pharaoh and says, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Pharaoh said, Well, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Do you remember that statement? Kind of a question. Sounds innocent, but almost defiant. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Well, he's about to find out. God's about to introduce himself in powerful, dramatic ways that Pharaoh and Egypt will not soon forget. Who is the Lord? Well, you're about to find out. Now, God will act so dramatically, so decisively, and so unmistakably that this event becomes the event, the pinnacle event, the focused event for Jewish people throughout history. Every year they celebrate Passover. Passover stems here after the ten plagues and they're finally released after the death of the firstborn. It's the dramatic event, so dramatic that the entire calendar for the Jews will revolve around the redemption out of Egypt. That becomes their first month. Now just a note that I think will help you. The Egyptians considered Pharaoh to be a god to be deified. And they identified Pharaoh as the god Horus, the son of the god Hathor, whom they said Hathor's father was Amon-Ra, the sun god. So they related the Pharaoh to the worship of the sun. Now you will see, beginning tonight, but on into the next several chapters, as the showdown of God versus Pharaoh, God will show Pharaoh who's boss. As he judges Not just Egypt in some random sort of a way, but very decisively judges their gods and goddesses. Verse 1, chapter 7. And so the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall be your prophet. The Hebrew word nebi, one who is a spokesman for God. You're going to be like God to Pharaoh. Aaron, your older brother, is going to be like your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron, your brother, shall speak to Pharaoh that he must send the children of Israel out of his land. Pharaoh could not relate to an unseen God. And that's what Moses and Aaron were talking about. That's why I said, who who is this God? I don't know him. Who is an unseen God? He could not relate to an unseen God. And here's why. All the gods and goddesses of the the Egyptian had some physical, tangible manifestation. They were statues of stones or of um, metal, gold, silver, wood, etc. They were uh, deified humanity or they were the rivers themselves like the Nile or the sun. Everything was was a god. It was a polytheistic slash pantheistic worship system. It was visible. It was tangible. Now, this, the signs that God is going to perform through Moses are going to be very visible, very tangible. It's going to affect the life of every Egyptian. So God's going to do those miracles through Moses, thus elevating Moses in the eyes of Pharaoh to be like God, like a deity. Look at this guy able to perform these miracles. And so in Pharaoh's eyes, Moses will be like God. So powerful, unmistakably. And as God will later on transmit his word through prophets, 
That's the role of Aaron to Moses. You remember the the lineup from from last time. God will speak his word to Moses. Moses will whisper it in the ear of Aaron. Aaron will be the mouthpiece because Moses said, I can't talk publicly. I'm a man of slow speech or I have a speech impediment. Uncircumcised lips is the technical term used here in our version. Verse 2, just notice, you shall speak all that I command you. Now watch this. You are to just say what I tell you to say. Don't add a single word. Don't take a word away. Now, as uncomfortable as that might make us as Christians, especially those who preach the word, because there are things in the Bible we just don't like to deal with. As uncomfortable as it might make us feel, this is what we're called to do. Speak the words of God. Speak everything God has commanded us to say. God doesn't like us messing with words, especially his words. Listen to what it says in Revelation 22. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. Whoever adds to the words of this prophecy or takes away, God will take away his part from the book of life and from the holy city and from the things that are written in this book. Now, this is why I believe we should teach through the Bible. I believe churches should teach through the Bible so that we can understand what is the whole counsel of God rather than just a series on how to reach your full potential, how to think better than you think now and all that crazy nonsense. Just stay to the text of the Bible and you'll cover every topic That's important to God and important for us. And you'll get it in its context and you'll get it with the biblical emphasis. So instead of those kinds of approaches, declaring the full counsel of God, Moses was not to edit what God said and say, well, this is sort of what it means to me, Pharaoh. I sort of take it like, no, he just what God said, he would tell him. Now, I want you to apply something else. I don't want to belabor it because I really do want to take the Lord's Supper with you. God said, Moses, you're going to be as God to Pharaoh. Because Moses essentially was God's representative. You are in exactly the same role as Moses. Did you know that? To people in the world, you represent God. You're like God to them. If they don't like something about God or something they hear about God or the Bible, they will often get mad at you for it. They'll take it out on you. Because you're a royal rep. You represent the king of heaven, the God of heaven. And it's important that we represent him in a very clear, unmistakable and holy fashion. Now, verse three, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. And we already discussed that last time. Two different words for harden. One is chazak, which means to fortify or strengthen or confirm. God says, I will do that. The other one later on says of Pharaoh that he will himself, kabod, harden his own heart. So Pharaoh makes a choice and hardens his heart, kabod, makes it heavy, irresponsive. And then God will come along and chazak, fortify, strengthen the decision that he has already made. But Pharaoh will not heed you so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt 
and bring out the children of Israel from among them. Here I see a beautiful example of how God's sovereignty interacts with man's responsibility. God allows us to set the course, to make the choice. Then God comes along and confirms the choice that we make. And through all of it, he'll use both our decision and his confirmation to fulfill his intention, ultimately. He's sovereignly in control, and within that sovereign control, he allows for human decisions to be made, but always to fulfill his intention. And so here we see that interaction and intersection in these verses. Verse 6. Then Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded them, so they did. And Moses was 80 years old. Now keep in mind, the author of this is Moses. Quite an admission. I'm 80 years old, and he's just getting started. You've only just begun. He's 80 years old, and he's only just begun his ministry, which will last him for years to come. And Aaron, 83 years old, his older brother by three years, when they spoke to Pharaoh. Now sometimes, just a sort of a side note, sometimes in the Old Testament, the ages of prominent people will be given just before an event or simultaneous to an extraordinary event. Uh, for example, uh, Joseph, we're told, was 30 years of age and he became the viceroy or the prime minister of Egypt. In Genesis 16, we're told Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar gave birth to Ishmael through Abraham. And that was right before that great and monumental birth of Isaac. A chapter later, chapter 17, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in his flesh and his son Ishmael was 13. So you'll see prominent figures, their age is given simultaneous to some great event taking place in the Old Testament. 80 years old, 83 years old, and they're just beginning. You know, some people are afraid of old age. And the older they get, the the scareder they get. Because they feel they're going to be marginalized or they're not going to be able to um, add and help out. And they're not going to be able to contribute. I remember when I was quite young and we used to have a little saying uh, years ago among our peer group. I think it was pretty universal in, in at least where I grew up. That you don't trust anybody over 30. We said that as a teenager, maybe approaching 20, because, you know, 20, it's like the older people are 20. But when you're over 30, you're sort of over the hill and you're untrustworthy. You just don't get it. That's what we thought. Well, things have changed since I thought that. (laughs) Now I wonder if I can trust people under 30. (laughs) This guy's 80 and he's just starting to walk with the Lord. Now, here's the principle. You can be used by God at any age any age, young or old. Paul told Timothy, don't let anybody look down on you because you're young. But also it goes for those who have walked with the Lord a long time. They have a lot to add. They have more to add. They have wisdom to add. They should be listened to. They should weigh in. They have a lot to share. Somebody once said, there's four ages of a man. The first age is when he believes in Santa Claus. The second age is when he doesn't believe in Santa Claus. The third age is when he is Santa Claus. 
And the fourth age is when he looks like Santa Claus. I think it's safe to say that Moses falls into category number four. He's 80 years old, probably looked a lot like Santa Claus, just getting started with the Lord. Let me just press this a little further. Caleb was one of the two spies, you'll find out, who saw the promised land with Joshua and said, we can take it. By God's grace, let's go for it. Years later, under Joshua, when they're settling the land in the book of Joshua, and they get to the place called Hebron, and they're dividing up that land, there's a special little area in a mountain. Caleb, on his birthday, walks forward and says, Joshua, I'm 85 years old today. And I am as strong today as I was 40 years ago, even for fighting battles, for going out and for coming in. Therefore, give me this mountain. 85 years old, and you couldn't put that guy in a rest home to save your life. He was still fighting battles. He wasn't humming elevator music. He was go-getter. At age 77... Ronald Reagan was retiring from presidency. At age 94, George Bernard Shaw had his first play finally published. At age 81, Benjamin Franklin became a signer and a framer of the U.S. Constitution. All tremendous advancements in an older age. Verse 8, And then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Show a miracle for yourselves. Then you shall say to Aaron, Take your rod, cast it before Pharaoh, and let it become a serpent. No doubt the Pharaoh was going to ask for some credentials. You boys are making some pretty stiff demands here. Let my people go. Prove that you really are representing this God that you talk about. And so... The serpent, the rod that we saw a few weeks ago was to be cast down. It would turn into a serpent. Now, a serpent was considered wise and magical in ancient Egypt. For that matter, in ancient culture, even Jesus said, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But back in Egypt, there was this wise, magical heir to the serpent. In fact, one of the uh, gods, goddesses, Wajet, was the patron goddess over southern Egypt, she was portrayed as a serpent for her wisdom. Verse 10, Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh, and they did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. But Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers. So the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. The word Enchantments could also be translated magic. The Egyptians believed that magic was the thread that held creation together. They were so superstitious and there were spells and incantations and dreams and omens and everything meant something mystical and magical. Now, we're left with a little bit of a quandary. We understand that Moses and Aaron were able to do what they did by the miraculous power of God. How did these false professors, these false representatives of foreign gods, how were they able to pull it off? Well, the key word is their enchantments. Now, we don't know if it was some sleight of hand or if it was some demonic power, but it was all based on their enchantments. Now, some 
point out that there was and still is today a way to take a certain type of a cobra, a certain species of cobra, and grab its head and put enough pressure in the right place, bending its head backwards, and the snake will stiffen like a rod and become completely rigid. They say it's still practiced today, and you can see it in some of the hieroglyphics and the scarab amulets of Egypt where that procedure is actually described in writing, their writing. So that they would take the head, pressure it, pull it back, the snake would become rigid, they would cast it down again, it sort of gets dazed when you do that, and it loses its rigidity and it slithers away. We must not think that it's beyond Satan's ability to bring counterfeit miracles. We have a bona fide miracle of Moses and Aaron. We could have either sleight of hand or demonic miracles taking place here. After all, Satan does, according to Paul in 2 Thessalonians, all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. And Jesus, Matthew 24, said, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the very elect. You remember when Jesus was on the earth and Satan took him to a high mountain and Satan showed him all of the kingdoms of the earth in a moment. He has certain abilities afforded to him by God up to a limit where he can perform signs and wonders. So these magicians gathered together, duplicating the sign. What were their names? Well, I just saw a lips move and I, 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 that was right. We know the names of two of them. Paul writes to Timothy and says, Janis and Jambres were two of those Pharaoh's magicians who confronted and opposed Moses. That's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. So the, those names are given. Verse 12. For every man threw down his rod, and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. Now clearly this is a battle of the gods, not unlike what happened with Elijah on Mount Carmel. And Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. Now along the lines of talking about miraculous signs and wonders, somebody texted in a question that fits perfectly right about now, and we'll throw it up on the screen. The question is, why doesn't God show signs like he did back then? Well, that's a good question, but I want you to think about it. For example, go to the book of Acts and you read about miracles and signs and wonders happening in Jerusalem as the gospel is getting started and the church is developing and spreading all over the world. It really doesn't take you long to read the book of Acts. You can read the book of Acts and uh, sit down and in an hour, a couple hours, you've gone from beginning to end. Well, you've just read about 30 miracles that have taken place. 30 miracles. Signs and wonders. But the period in which the book of Acts, the setting of it, is 30 years. So in reality, you read this book that represents 30 years of church history. You have 30 miracles. That averages out to be about a miracle per year. And now I would say, I think we see that in our modern times. But also, keep in mind that God is trying to demonstrate his ultimate power over an entire godless system in Egypt the pantheon of deities that Egypt believed in, the gods and goddesses, and to unmistakably lead his people with great power into their land. 
in so much so that that will become the fulcrum that they will look back to throughout their history, the deliverance from Egypt. So God would do it according to his sovereign plan with great signs and wonders. Now, beginning in verse 14, we start reading about the ten plagues, and we're only going to cover one tonight. These plagues will grow, each one greater in intensity and severity. And the plagues will serve two purposes. Number one, to reveal God's person. Number two, to reveal God's power. God's person and God's power. The question Pharaoh asks is, who is the Lord that I should obey him? God's going to reveal powerfully who he is through mighty signs and wonders. That's why he says back in verse 3, I'm going to multiply signs and wonders to reveal his person. But second, to reveal his power through a series of these judgments. Okay, I said something and I want to tie it in now. I said it a few minutes ago. Each of these plagues, they're not random. They're targeted at specific gods and goddesses in Egypt. Whether it's the god of the Nile River, whether it's the god they worshipped in the form of a frog, and we'll go through some of those identities next time. But in chapter 12, verse 12, the Lord says this, Against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute my judgment, for I am the Lord. Now, though there were about 3,000 gods and goddesses and thousands of temples around the land, the chief gods and goddesses in their pantheon were the ones that are targeted during this series of plagues. It was a polytheistic culture, many gods and goddesses. It was a pantheistic culture. Uh, The earth is God, the sun is God, everything is tied into being God in some form. Yahweh is one God. And it's not like those gods are real anyway. They're fake. They can't do anything. They were made up by people. There is only one true God. Let me tell you something about polytheism. Polytheism, even in ancient cultures, often began as monotheism, where people believed in one God. But over time, they started adding human reasoning to that belief. They said, there must not just be one God over everything, because that would be like a lot of work for one person to do. So he must need other gods and goddesses to help him manage the universe and, and, and work in the lives of people. So they developed, by their own reasoning, other deities. Just like people today can't ascribe God enough power and he needs saints and he needs angels and he needs a lot of help to get things done. It's the same idea in the ancient kind of ancient world. Um, these ten plagues could be divided up into three groups. The first three plagues touch the luxury of Egypt. The second three plagues touch the lifestyle of Egypt. And the last three plagues touch life itself in Egypt. Okay, the first three, luxury. Uh, The water source was turned to blood, so they couldn't conveniently drink. They couldn't conveniently wash their bodies because of of the foul odor and, and the bloody water. It became very inconvenient. They would have to go to other freshwater springs to get any of that done. And then there were uh, frogs that made life really slimy and slippery all over the place. Lice, all of those are the first three. The second three touched the lifestyle of Egypt. The possessions that they owned, the cattle that they owned, flies on everything, pestilence on the livestock. 
and then boils on people's bodies. And then finally, life itself, hail, destroyed, vegetation. The death of the firstborn, which is the tenth plague, it destroyed all the firstborn in Egypt. Let's get down to verse 14 and begin with the first plague. Now, the first plague has three parts. First of all, we have divine instruction. Notice the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. Of course, now Pharaoh knew this, but God is making a declaration and an instruction. Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. And so Pharaoh, or go to Pharaoh in the morning. Notice when he goes out to the water and you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him. And the rod, which is turned to a serpent, you shall take in your hand. Now, this probably happened in the summer, the summer months. Around July into August, the Nile River rises and overflows its banks, inundates the land, and that's where the greatest abundance of crops come from. They'll channel and they'll collect that water as the water overflows the Nile in the summer months and distribute it through the rest of the land. It would seem that Pharaoh, on a daily basis, walked out to the river. Because God says, when he goes out to the river, you go meet him. And you confront him when he goes down to the river. Pharaoh would go down to the river in the summer months, July and August, and offer up praise to the God of the Nile River. Or the gods that would oversee the Nile River. Songs of thanksgiving were often sung by the Egyptians to the Nile River. So it became a standard ritual during the summer months for Pharaoh to go down to the banks of the Nile River. Now, there are several gods that are associated with the river. The god Hapi, H-A-P-I. And I'll describe him in a minute. He wouldn't be too Hapi, but that was his name, Hapi. Isis is another god of the Nile River, I-S-I-S, and Kanum, K-H-N-U-M. Those three gods were associated with supervising the um, Nile River. Now, Hapi was depicted as a big fat man with the breasts of a woman, which was to speak of fertility and nurturing. See, you wouldn't be, anybody wouldn't be too Hapi with that kind of a setup. (laughs) That's how he was depicted in Egyptian lore and mythology. Also, they celebrated the yearly miraculous rebirth of Osiris as they went down to the Nile River. He was the god of the earth and the vegetation. The Egyptians said that the Nile River was the very, get this, bloodstream of the god Osiris. The bloodstream of Osiris. So it's no coincidence that the bloodstream was turned to blood. And, by the way, the Egyptians hated blood. That's why they didn't believe in blood sacrifices. They hated the idea of literal blood. It was abhorrent to them. So now that source of life and economy is blood. Verse 16, And you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now, you would not hear. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the river shall die, and the river shall stink. 
and the Egyptians will loathe or hate to drink the water of the river. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your rod and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams, over the rivers, over their ponds, over all their pools of water. These are the receptacles where they will collect the water in. Now, we know something about this. If you live down in the Rio Grande River Valley, you have the middle Rio Grande canals and rivulets, these little depositories that will convey water to people's property. Well, they did that back in Egypt. They cut these canals, these ditches out, these laterals that would leave the Nile River, and then they would take the water and collect it in pools. All that stemmed from the Nile River was turned to blood. And over all their pools of water, that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and vessels of stone. So that's the first part of this plague, divine instruction. Here's the second miraculous sensation. Here's the real miracle. And Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod, struck the waters that were in the river, in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, And all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. And the fish that were in the river died, and the river stank. And the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river, so there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. I wonder if God isn't saying to the Egyptians, your religion stinks. All of your gods and all of your goddesses can't quench your thirst can't satisfy your basic needs, can't fix this problem, this stinks. It did literally, and it also did spiritually. Now contrast this. See, they look to the Nile as their source of refreshment and life. Jesus said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Jesus said to the woman at the well of Samaria, you drink of this water, you'll get thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give will never thirst. Now these Egyptians are inconvenienced and can't drink water or bathe from the Jordan River. Now I will say this. Commentators love to get very creative to give a supernatural element or event in the Bible, some natural explanation. For instance, some commentators say that The redness comes from a minute fungi that could have been present in the Nile River or from red vegetable matter that gave it that red tint. Still others will say tiny insects of a reddish hue gave it that color. But it does say it turned to blood. And those explanations do not explain the suddenness of this event. All of those explanations require time. This was a sudden event, and the extensiveness of death to the fish can only be explained by miraculous intervention. So that's the miraculous sensation. Now, the third part of this miracle is the resultant action in verse 22. Then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. Boy, that's weird. Isn't it a little bit odd that the magicians of Egypt did exactly the same thing that Moses and Aaron did? I mean, if somebody curses your river, why would you go out there and curse it more? 
They turned it to blood. I can do that. Watch. I, if I were Pharaoh, I'd go, no. If anything, reverse it. Now, here's the question. If Moses and Aaron struck the water and all of the river and all of the rivulets and ditches and laterals and ponds turned to blood, it sounds like there's not much water left. What water did these magicians have to replicate the miracle? Fair question. The best answer, I believe, comes to us back in verse 24 or down in verse 24. Just just notice ahead. It says, they dug around the river for water to drink. In other words, around the Nile River were and are some fresh water sources not connected to the Nile itself per se, its flow. They're few and far between, but they are there and they knew that they were there and they turned those into blood, which again, I look and submit to you is absolutely stupid because keep what you got so you have something to drink. These magicians are representative, I believe, of something that's going to happen in the future, a preview of coming attraction, so to speak, the kind of deception that will happen in the last days. Listen to this. This is 2 Timothy 3. I alluded to it a moment ago. In the last days, perilous times shall come. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Now, as Janice and Jambres resisted Moses, so these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all. Deception is nothing new, and according to Paul and Jesus and Peter and John, it will continue all the way through the last days, and even we are counseled to beware of it, to use discernment because of it. Verse 23. So Pharaoh turned and went into his house. Neither was his heart moved by this. Wow. His heart is still hardened. His heart is not moved. But this is only plague number one. By plague number 10, actually around plague number eight, he'll be going, Uncle! arm will be behind the back. I give up. And then he'll harden it again, his heart, and then nine. But on 10, he absolutely has to surrender as the God of the universe shows his mighty strength. 10 plagues, 10 plagues. And there are 10 commandments. And that's the question that we just got texted in. It says, there seems to be a pattern with the 10 plagues and the 10 commandments. Why 10? Well, I don't know that there's a direct correlation between the commandments and the plagues. Why 10? God chose 10. 10's an easy number to remember. I got 10 fingers and 10 toes. Anybody could remember 10. And if you're going to teach the 10 plagues to your children, you could use them by their fingers or the 10 commandments, the same thing. Now, it brings up an issue. There may be a correlation But I submit to you, if there was a correlation, it would be plainly seen in the Bible. You see, I I figure it this way. I have enough trouble just reading the Bible and finding out what is really there 
rather than trying to suppose what may be there on top of what is really there. If I can just put into practice what's already there, I'll be doing good. But then to mystify and spiritualize everything to make it correlate can be a mistake. Now, there are types in the Bible and there are patterns in the Bible, but whenever there are types and patterns, they will be explained. They will be shown. One scripture will explain the other scripture. It's one of the hallmarks of the Reformation. So there might be a correlation. Why 10? God chose 10. It worked. He didn't need 11. Verse 24. So all the Egyptians dug around the river for the water to drink because they could not drink the water from the river. So they had to find the springs that they and their magicians didn't contaminate. And seven days passed after the Lord had struck the river. The only recourse the people had was to tap into those untapped water sources, the subterranean supply, wherever they could find it in Egypt. Can you imagine, though? No water for a week. We saw, what was it, a week ago when gas was turned off to some homes throughout New Mexico, some of even maybe your homes, if you were in those areas, or for a few days in the cold, severe weather, people didn't have gas. Imagine if there was no water available for a week. Your body needs water. You could effectively shut down an entire nation. Certainly God could get their attention. Now I speak about preview of coming attractions. Listen to this. This is in the Great Tribulation period, Revelation 16. And the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. What happened in Egypt is going to happen in much greater form in the Great Tribulation period when God gets the attention of the world. And like he judged the gods in the past, he will judge the false belief system and the humanism of our modern time with the Great Tribulation period. It will turn to blood. Well, the long and short of it is, is Pharaoh is going to discover it's really stupid to try to fight God. You can try. You're not going to win. You can harden your heart, but you're going to lose. But you know what? Some people still try that today. They still harden their heart. I don't believe that stuff. I don't want to receive Christ. I don't want to go forward. I don't want to pray that prayer. I don't want to live for Jesus. And that's okay. But it's a losing battle. Because you see, in the end, you're going to have to do business with God. It won't just be you alone in the cosmic loneliness of the universe. You're going to stand before a holy God and have to give an account for your life. And yet, some people in defying God will justify their behavior in saying, well, God hasn't stopped me. I live how I live and I do what I want to do and there seems to be no resistance, no cosmic resistance to what I want to do. And they mistake God's long-suffering as being God's approval. All that proves is your God and the God of this universe is very patient and long-suffering, just like he gave the Amalekites and the Canaanites 400 years to repent before he judged that nation by bringing the people of Israel out of Egypt to inhabit their land and kick all of them out. God is patient, and God is still reaching out. So, what do we learn tonight? God took the life, blood, the bloodstream of Osiris, the Nile River, 
and turned it into blood, showing the Egyptians it's not the bloodstream of Osiris. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And there's a sovereign God in heaven. So, the blood that they saw was the revelation to the Egyptians that God wanted to deliver his people. The blood was the sign. God means business. He wants to deliver his people. To the Egyptians, it was the sign of judgment. To the Israelites, it was a sign of salvation. 2,000 years ago, God put his son on the cross. And his son shed blood. And that blood was a sign that he wants to deliver people. And once and for all, by trusting in that finished work, people of all generations could be delivered. That blood was a symbol of judgment to the world, but a symbol of salvation to us. God's plan of deliverance. I want to close tonight as we take communion, the Lord's Supper together. And I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and get ready for that. I want to read to you a parable. I want you to imagine this as a real setting in your life. Here it is. The day is over. You're driving home from work. You turn on the radio and you hear a blurb about a little village in India where some villagers have died suddenly, strangely, of a flu that has never been seen before. It's not influenza, but three or four fellows are dead. Some doctors are going over to investigate it. You don't think much about it. But on Sunday, coming home from church, you hear another radio spot that says it's not three villagers, it's 30,000 villagers. CNN announces that doctors from the Centers for Disease Control are heading to India to investigate. By Monday morning, when you get up, it's the lead story. It's not just India, but now Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran. It's the lead story on every radio and television show in your area. The disease has been coined the mystery flu. The president makes a public announcement that he and everyone else at the White House are praying for the people suffering from the mystery flu. Shortly after that, the president of France makes an announcement that shocks Europe. He's closing their borders. No flights will be allowed into France from India, Pakistan, Iran, or any of the countries where the mystery flu has been identified. That night, you watch CNN before you go to bed. Your jaw hits your chest when a weeping French woman appears on the screen. She sobs. There's a man lying in a hospital in Paris dying of the mystery flu. The reporter informs viewers of the symptoms. No signs of anything in the first week, followed by four days of fever, chills, difficulty in breathing, and then death. Britain closes its borders but not before the mystery flu is reported in Southampton, Northampton, and Liverpool. It's Tuesday morning when the President of the United States makes the following announcement. Ladies and gentlemen, due to national security risk, all flights to and from Europe and Asia have been canceled. If your loved ones are overseas, I'm sorry. They cannot come back until we find a cure for this disease. On Wednesday night at a church prayer meeting, somebody runs in from the parking lot and urges, turn on a radio. Turn on the radio. While the church listens to a little transistor radio through a microphone placed in front of it, the announcement is made. Two women are lying on a Long Island hospital dying from the mystery flu. Within hours, the mystery flu sweeps across the country, Massachusetts, Florida, Arizona, California. The Center for Disease Control is working around the clock to find an antidote. Nothing is working. Finally, the news breaks. 
The code has been broken. A vaccine can be made. It's going to require the blood of somebody who hasn't yet been infected. Through the emergency broadcasting network, people are asked to make their way quickly to their local hospital and have their blood type checked. Hospitals will provide further instructions. When you and your family get to the hospital Friday night, there's a long line. Doctors and nurses are busily pricking fingers, taking blood, labeling and categorizing everything. They check your blood, your wife's and your kids. You're told to wait in the parking lot with the others. You stand silently among the sea of people. Breaking the silence, a young woman comes out of the hospital yelling a name and waving her clipboard. He yells it again. Your son tugs on your jacket and says, Daddy, that's me. Quickly, they take your boy inside. Wait a minute, hold it, you insist as you follow them into the hospital. The doctor informs you, We think he's got the right blood type. His blood is clean. His blood is pure. Five tense minutes later, the doctors and nurses come to you crying and hugging one another. Some are even laughing. It's the first time you've seen anyone laugh in a week. One of the doctors shakes your hand and says, thank you, sir. Your son's blood type is perfect. It's clean. It's pure. And we can make the vaccine. As word begins to spread across the parking lot, people begin weeping with joy, praying and laughing. The gray-haired doctor pulls you and your wife aside and says, may we see you for a moment? We didn't realize that the donor would be a minor and we need, we need you to sign a consent form. You begin to sign, but then you notice that the space on the form stating the number of pints to be taken is empty. How many pints are you asking for? The doctor smile fades. Quietly, he says, we had no idea that he would be a child. We weren't prepared. We need it all. We're talking about the world here. We really need it all. But can't you give him a transfusion, you plead? I'm sorry. If we had clean blood, we would. Please, will you sign? In numb silence, you sign the paper. Gently, the doctor asks, Would you like to have a moment with him before we begin? You walk back to the room where he sits on the table. Daddy? Mommy? What's going on? You take his hand and you say, Son, your mommy and I love you. And we would never let anything happen to you that didn't have to be. Do you understand that? The doctor returns and says, I'm sorry. We've got to get started. People all over the world are dying. You leave, but as you leave, you hear your son crying out, Dad, Dad, why are you leaving me? The next week, during the funeral ceremony to honor your son, some folks sleep through it. Some come with a pretentious smile, and you know they're only pretending to care. Others don't come at all because... They've gone to the lake. During the ceremony, you want to jump up and say, My son died. Don't you care? Well, you can see that parable as the story of the father giving his son and the blood of his son as the vaccine for the sin of the world. Don't you care? We gather because we care. We care. We know We want to declare and we want to pass on that legacy, reinforcing it to our own hearts and passing it on to our children. 
Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.